Well, this is it, the final week of the road trip. Can't believe it. It's been a blast. We have one last stop. We're gonna get our hands dirty on this one. That's right, we're heading to Coon Rapids High School to help out with the load-in. Yeah. Coon Rapids, come on! Here we're we coming for you. Here we go. All right, we made it to Coon Rapids. This may seem like a normal high school, but in a little bit, it's gonna be a church. And it'll go a lot faster, Mike, if we help. Let's go. Every single week, volunteers arrive at 10 a.m. Saturday morning and get to work setting up the stage. They roll in huge boxes of gear, set up platforms, lay out cables, hang lights, and set up instruments. And little by little, they turn a school auditorium into a place of worship. Around noon, more volunteers arrive and begin to transform classrooms into kids' spaces, lobbies into bookstores, and kitchens into coffee houses. They hang banners and put up signs, and they do it every single weekend. So, Sally, you're the yep. video director here. Yes, I so am. So what is this room normally when it's a school? It is the men's dressing room ah. for the school plays and things like Excellent. that. Excellent. What is it going to be in just a few it's minutes? It's going to be a video control room probably in about a half an hour or so. Wow. The most challenging thing is just the amount of time that we have to do it because we can only be in the building at a certain time. Every weekend it's a circus, but it so happens that, in the end. That first time you turn on the power and just go... Oh, there's crossed, crossed fingers, crossed eyes, crossed legs. Everyone's hoping that everything works. How many people does it take to set up every weekend? It takes seven people wow. to set up just production. Really? So there's even more with all the kids oh, and all yeah. the other stuff a lot. I have no idea what goes on outside of those doors. All right, I'm here with Reese, and Reese is a high school student here at Coon Rapids. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you help put things together every week, right? Yes. What do you do? So all the stuff you see is stored in the basement, and we bring that stuff up on Saturday evenings, and we set up all the tiles on the floors, and then the walls surrounding the kids, and then every toy that you see the kids play with is brought up from the basement. That's amazing. Thanks for what you do. Hey, I'm here with Aaron Damianovich, campus pastor of Coon Rapids. We've been here, we've seen the load in, we've seen the work that goes into it. In your perspective, what are the benefits? What are the payoffs to all the work? Well, it is difficult, but the payoff is when you have all these people coming together to work so hard so that 1,200 more people can come to church here. It is so worth it. 1,200 people every weekend are yeah. coming to this place because of the work that your team does. Yeah. It's a great team. You're obviously a great leader, but let's get Aaron to work here. All right. All right. It's, I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to supervise. It's kind of heavy, though. I don't know if I can do this. Stop complaining. <laughs> Coon Rapids High School is now Eagle Brook Church, just like that. And just like that, we've wrapped up the unstoppable road trip. I hope you have had as much fun as we have had. Uh, we now join up with Jason Strand as he wraps up the unstoppable message series. All right, well, hey, everybody, welcome to Eagle Brook Church. Thanks for being with us this weekend. Uh, we are wrapping up an eight-week series today called Unstoppable, based upon the book of Acts. And if you're not familiar with it, the book of Acts is the story of the early church. It's a story of what happened after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And we get this word unstoppable from the idea that the church itself was unstoppable. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, a group of Jewish religious leaders, many of whom were a part of killing Jesus, become furious with Peter, John, and the other disciples. They want to kill them 
because they've been teaching that Jesus rose again from the dead. Just as a mob is about to gather, another Jewish religious leader named Gamaliel speaks. And the text says that Gamaliel was an expert in the law. He was popular with the people. Look at what he says to this group. He says, my advice is, leave these men alone. If they are teaching and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. In other words, if they're just making this whole thing up about Jesus rising again from the dead, it's not going to go anywhere. People are going to forget about this in a few months or a few years. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. 2,000 years later and over 2 billion followers of Christ later, I would say it was of God, which is why I've titled today's message Unstoppable Church. When I was in college, I took a missions trip out to New York during spring break, and while we were there, we went to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. We actually attended a prayer meeting there. The Brooklyn Tab, as it's known by locals, is located in the heart of Brooklyn, right on Livingston and Smith Street, and this is not a nice part of town. As we pulled up, we could see gangs of young people across the street. Our host pointed out a drug deal that was going down and a prostitute that was walking her corner. The whole thing felt dark to me, and not just physically dark because it was at night. There was a spiritual sense of darkness on those streets. We finally got into the tabernacle, and since it was a prayer meeting, I was expecting a small, solemn gathering with some of the older members of the church. This was not your grandma's prayer meeting. I mean, it was rocking. The Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir is world famous. They've released several albums, but the craziest part was the offering. Everybody danced. I'm serious. It wasn't like, oh, now we have to give highlight of the service. And so this usher comes down the aisle and he's like, doing this little dance as he brings the offering basket down. And all of a sudden, everybody around me starts doing this little dance. I'm a white kid from the suburbs. I'm like, do you guys know the sprinkler? Huh? Raise the roof, who let the dogs out? It wasn't real pretty on my end of things. And that's actually how we ended church. They formed a conga line and danced out of church onto the street. And I'll never forget, it felt like a collision between light and darkness. The gang members and drug dealers stood across the street and watched us laugh and dance and be filled with a supernatural kind of joy. And for just a moment at least, it felt like the light of God's people had overcome the darkness of that street. I thought, no matter where I am in the world today, there is a hope and there is a joy and there is a life found in the church that isn't found anywhere else. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and even the gates of hell won't be able to conquer it. Drug dealers, gang members, sex trade, spiritual oppression and darkness, nothing, not even hell itself can stop the church when it's functioning at its fullest capacity. When the light of God's people encounter the darkness of this world, the darkness will have to flee. That's why Bill Hybels has said that the local church is the hope of the world. Think about that for a moment. The local church is the hope of the world. Do you believe that? 
Now, just to be clear, Heibel believes that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, but the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. In other words, it's an extension of Jesus into the world today. Another verse says that the church is the bride of Christ. It's become trendy these days, even among some Christians, to bash the church. They'll say, well, we really like Jesus, but we don't want to have anything to do with the church. And on the one hand, that's understandable. The church is an easy target. It's filled with sinful and imperfect people, and so you're always going to be able to find fault in it. But imagine for a moment if I came up to you and I said, you know, I, I really like you, but I don't want to have anything to do with your bride. Or if you heard me going around telling other people, you know, I really like you, but I can't stand your bride. How well do you think that would go over? The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And when it's functioning at its full capacity, there's nothing like it. About four years ago, I met a man in this seat right down here who had just found out that his wife was leaving him for another man. He hadn't been to church in years, but he wasn't even sure where else to go. And so we prayed to receive Christ right there in a church. And these days, he's still following Christ, and his life is completely transformed. I met another man in those seats right over there who had lots of questions about God. He didn't know what his purpose in life was. And so we prayed to receive Christ, and these days, he's leading an impactful nonprofit and is here every single weekend. Friends, that sort of thing doesn't normally happen in a movie theater, ballpark, stadium, or bowling alley. It happens in the church all the time. And so today I want to look at the book of Acts from the first chapter to the last chapter, and I want to pull out what are the main themes in this book. Why were people in the first century going to the church to find the hope and the healing that they needed for life, and how can we be that kind of church today? There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We are living today in chapter 29. We are an extension of what started in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And so how can we be an Acts 29 kind of church? How can we carry on what started 2,000 years ago? I see three ways right out of the book of Acts. The first one is this. Let's be a generous church. Look at how Acts describes what it was like in the early church. It says this. All the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions And they shared the proceeds with those in need. They worshiped together and shared meals with great joy and generosity. Imagine if that could be said about our church. Imagine if people who don't even attend Eagle Brook would say, you know, I've heard that's a really generous church. That's already happening, by the way. Last year, the people of this church showed incredible generosity by giving $722,000 through our MICA project. Of that, $306,000 went to local organizations like food shelves, fire and police departments, the dwelling place, which is housing for victims of domestic abuse, and Hope for Youth, which works with homeless teenagers. Our church started to gain a reputation as being a generous Church So much so that many organizations started to contact us wanting to partner in the future. 
One that stands out to me was a local sheriff. He told us about a tent city. A tent city is a group of about 40 or 50 homeless youth that are living out in the woods in tents. And this sheriff had heard that some of these teenagers wanted Bibles. So our Coon Rapids campus did a Bible drive. The sheriff brought the Bibles out to these teenagers and ended up leading 12 of them to faith in Christ. That is 12 teenagers who now at least have the hope that there is a God who knows them and has a plan and a hope for their future. Friends, that's the sort of thing that happens when you're a generous church. That's the sort of thing that happens when you give God your first and your best. In fact, you may want to jot this down. God deserves our first and our best. In the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the people were giving God a sacrifice. They just weren't giving him their first and their best. Listen to what God says to these people. He says this, when you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord Almighty. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Ask the Lord Almighty. See, these people, they had good sheep, but instead they would say, well, you know, that one's blind, and he keeps running into trees. You know, we'll give that one to God. Or, you know, that one, he's kind of deformed. He's got three legs. We'll give that one to God. And God's like, are you kidding? I know what you spend on yourself. I, I know the good sheep that you've kept for yourself. Would you even give that to your governor? Would you even give that to another human being? In other words, God's not interested in our leftovers. A while back, I saw an illustration by Francis Chan using a chicken wing and I immediately got excited because I have a goal to incorporate all of my favorite foods into a message at some point in my ministry. And I think chicken wings is one of the few that was still on the list. Now, let's say that this chicken wing represents all that God has given to you. This represents all of your finances, everything that God has blessed you with. And so we go, oh God, thank you so much. But here's what oftentimes happens. We go, you know, but got to pay my mortgage. And I got a car payment, and I got to pay that too. And uh, got to eat. Guys got to eat, right? And uh, got to have life insurance. You know, who knows what could happen. And got to have retirement. You know, got to save for that at some point. And uh, cable TV. <laughs> and eat out. And, you know go see a movie and all that kind of stuff. And here's what we do. We spend and we spend and we spend on ourselves. And then after all that is done, we go, oh, uh, God, here. <laughs> this is for you. Hold on one moment. That is the driest chicken wing known to man. <laughs> That's crazy. But here's what's even more crazy. 
There are some people who think that God is up in heaven going, oh, there's still some meat on that. Thank you. That's what the people of Malachi's day thought. They thought, you know, we'll just spend and spend and spend on ourselves, and then if we have anything left over at the end, well, we'll give that to God. Look what God says in the very next verse. He says, I wish that someone among you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. God's like, I'd rather you don't even gather. I'd rather you just keep the door shut. Don't even turn on the lights or fire up the central air than offer me that. I remember reading that for the first time and being surprised. I thought God would be fine with my leftovers. I thought God would be happy I was giving anything at all. The reality is God wants our first and our best. He deserves our first and our best. He rewards those. He shows favor to those who give their first and their best. It's what a generous church looks like. And so let me ask you, would you be willing, would you be willing to get along with God this week and just ask him this in prayer? God, do you want me to be more generous? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Just to ask yourself, God, am I really giving you my first and my best? Am I caring for those who are in need? Am I setting aside a percentage of my income to give to your work through the local church before I spend anything on myself? That's what the early church was like. They were generous. Let's be known as a generous church as well. Second way that we can be an Acts 29 kind of church and carry on what started 2,000 years ago is this. Let's be a church that never forgets what our true mission is. Look at what Paul writes in Acts 20. This is so good. He says, but my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. God has a purpose for your life. And it is not just to make some more money, get promoted, gain some notoriety, be healthy and happy. There's nothing wrong with those necessarily, but ultimately they don't bring purpose to your life. Notice what Paul says. He says Jesus had assigned him work and his life was worth nothing unless he was doing that work. What was that work? He tells us, he says it was to tell other people about God's wonderful kindness and love. When you look at your life, when other people look at your life, do they see a person who's on a mission? Do they see a person who has a purpose in life? You don't have to quit your job or move to Africa to do this, by the way. I know a guy who started a Bible study on Tuesday mornings at his work. He is doing the work that God assigned him to do. I know a family in this church that purchased a bus so that they could bring more teenagers to our Wednesday night programming. They bring between 100 and 120 teenagers every Wednesday night, some of whom would not otherwise attend church. They are doing the work that God assigned them to do. I know people who work full-time jobs and then come to volunteer as a small group leader for student ministries. I know people who are part of men's groups trying to reach other men for Christ. And I know lots of people who pray. They pray for their neighbors and they pray for their coworkers and they ask God to just give them an opportunity once in a while to tell those people about Christ. They all have a purpose They have a mission to their life. What about you? Do you have a purpose? 
Do you have a mission to your life? Paul says this, but my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. Let's never be a church that forgets what our true mission is. Third way to be an Acts 29 kind of church that carries on what started in the early church is this. Let's be a church that's not ashamed of our faith. The word bold or boldness is used 11 times in the book of Acts. That's more than any other book in the New Testament. Next highest mention is three. If there was a defining characteristic of the early church, it's that they were bold. Acts 14 verse 3 says this, But the apostles stayed there a long time speaking boldly about the grace of the Lord. Acts 9.28, Saul stayed with the apostles and went around Jerusalem with them speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. When they were threatened with prison or death, they didn't pray, oh Lord, protect us, be with us, be present. No, no, they prayed, God, make us even more bold. Acts 4.29 says, give your servants great boldness in preaching your word, and that's the kind of prayer God answered. It says this in the next verse, it says, after this prayer, The meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Imagine if every one of us prayed a prayer like that this week. If we just said, Lord, make me more bold to tell other people about you. I have to admit, I'm more bold in front of a crowd of people than I am face to face. But I never want to be ashamed of a man who died for me. I never want to be ashamed of a man who loved me that much. About a month ago, my son Hudson, who's seven years old, got invited to do the delivery of the game at a Timberwolves game. And the delivery of the game is where you bring the game ball out to the referee before tip-off, and all of this gets shown on the Jumbotron scoreboard. Here's a picture of Hudson delivering this ball. The Timberwolves were playing the Golden State Warriors that night, and Hudson's favorite player is Steph Curry, the point guard for the Warriors. He loves Curry because he might be the best shooter of all time, but he's also a strong Christian off the court. And so for Christmas this past year, we got Hudson a Steph Curry jersey. Before the game, Hudson was trying to decide if he wanted to wear his Steph Curry Warriors jersey or if he wanted to wear his Ricky Rubio Timberwolves jersey. He likes Rubio. You don't get to live in my house if you don't. But his favorite player is Steph Curry, but he was worried that if he wore this Steph Curry jersey, all the Timberwolves fans were going to boo him when he's shown on the Jumbotron handing over this game ball. Finally, Hudson decided to wear the Steph Curry jersey. And so we're driving down to the game, and Hudson's in the back seat, and he goes, Dad, they're going to boo me. (laughs) They're going to boo me, but I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. I love Steph Curry. I said, that's great. Are you okay if I boo you then? (laughs) Because I love Ricky Rubio and the Timberwolves. When we got there, one of the employees for the Timberwolves kind of ushered us out onto the court, and it just so happens that she used to work for Steph Curry's agency. And so we're telling her this story of how we, you know, wore this jersey even though Hudson was afraid of getting booed. And just then, over walks Steph Curry and starts talking to this Timberwolves employee. And so I'm like, Hudson, get in the shot. This is our chance. (laughs) And before Curry left, 
She turned to him, this Timberwolves employee did, and said, Steph, I I just got to introduce you to someone before you go. This is Hudson. And he wore your jersey tonight, even though he was afraid that he might get booed for doing so. And my son got to meet his favorite basketball player, Steph Curry. Now, Curry was really cool about this. He said, oh, you made a conscious decision? Way to go. I'm proud of you. Thanks for representing me so well. It was a pretty magical night until the Timberwolves lost in the last 10 seconds. And here was my reaction to that. One of the guys who takes pictures down there happens to go to our church. And so right at that moment, he was just locked right in on me. He got a kick out of that. Here's my point. My son wasn't embarrassed about his love for Steph Curry, and he was rewarded for it. He wasn't afraid of a little booing. He wasn't afraid of a little mocking. He wasn't afraid of what other people thought of him. He loves Steph Curry, and he's proud of it. Are you proud to love Jesus? Would you wear his jersey in public, so to speak? Or have you become afraid of a little booing? I never want to be afraid of a little mocking. I never want to be afraid of standing out a little bit in the crowd because I am living for that day when I get to shake the hand of a man who is far greater than Steph Curry. His name is Jesus Christ. And in that moment, what I hope to hear him say is, you made a conscious decision. Way to go. I'm proud of you. Thanks for representing me so well. Imagine hearing those words. The Apostle Paul lived to hear those words. He wrote this in Romans 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. Paul wasn't kidding. The whole second half of the book of Acts details him traveling from city to city all throughout the Mediterranean world telling people about Christ. On his way to Rome, he gets shipwrecked. He gets marooned and stranded on an island called Malta. While he's there, he gets bit by a poisonous snake, somehow lives. He survives an angry mob in Ephesus, gets put in prison in Macedonia, And then in Antioch and Iconium, it says this. It says, The crowd turned into a murderous mob, stoned Paul, and dragged him out of the city, apparently dead. Look at this next verse. But as the believers stood around him, he got up and went back into the city. And he wasn't going back to find a hospital. He wasn't going back to find a doctor who could stitch him up. He was going back to tell people about Christ. At the very end of Paul's life, he's on house arrest in Rome. And I want to read to you the very last verse in the book of Acts. It's the last verse in the whole book. It's so good. It says this, For the next two years, Paul lived in his own rented house. He welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and teaching about the Lord Christ. And then I love this last line. And no one tried to stop him. He was unstoppable. But why? 
What would made Paul continue to boldly teach about Christ even though he was under house arrest? Here's the answer. He had tasted and he had seen. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul had done that. He had tasted. He had seen with his own eyes how good a relationship with Christ could be. For spring break this past year, uh, Sarah and I drove our kids down to South Carolina. And one day while we were there, we were looking for a place to eat lunch. And my wife was advocating for a picnic on the beach by the ocean. And then we passed a Waffle House. And I was like, you know, you really haven't experienced the South until you've eaten at a Waffle House. My wife reluctantly agreed and then proceeded to order a salad. I was like, what is wrong with you? You don't order a salad at the Waffle House. I had enough sense to order a waffle at the Waffle House. When they brought the waffle out, it had this container on top that was like this big or so. And I thought, ooh, I don't know if that's going to be enough syrup for me. Then I opened it. It was butter. I was like, oh, it's about to get real up in here. And I am telling you, that waffle was amazing. I gave a bite to my wife. She wanted to stop on the way home so she could get one for herself. I am like a Waffle House evangelist. I met a guy at the place we were staying from Tennessee. And he said, have you eaten at any good places down here? I said, uh, yeah. Have you ever been to a Waffle House? I think he thought I was kidding. It must be the decor. If you've never been to a Waffle House before, comedian Jim Gaffigan says that just picture a gas station bathroom that sells waffles. <laughs> and he's right about that, but those waffles are tasty, I'm telling you. Now, I know that those of you who are foodies are completely repulsed by all this. You're all hoity-toity about your food, and so you're like, Waffle House, I can't believe... Okay, just hold with me for a moment here, okay? Here's my point. Isn't that what you do when you find a great restaurant? You go tell other people, you're like, you got to taste this for yourself. Or you go see a great movie. What do you do? You go tell people, you got to see that for yourself. You need to experience that. Why is it that we will tell other people about restaurants and movies, but are hesitant about church or Jesus Christ? Kind of odd that we're